Okay, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to have this wonderful discussion of an important book. So we have our three panelists today are Remy Brog, who is Professor Emeritus of Arabic and Religious Philosophy at the Sorbonne, and Romano Guardini, Chair of Philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. In 2012, he was awarded the Ratzinger Prize for Theology, which is impressive for a philosopher, so very good. And he is the author of numerous books, many, many books, on classical and medieval culture, religion, literature, and law, including Eccentric Culture, a Theory of Western Civilization, and The Law of God, The Philosophical History of an Idea. Um, so we're very uh, grateful to have Professor Brog with us today. We also have uh, two other eminent uh, younger scholars, but eminent none nonetheless. So we have Daniel Mahoney, who is Professor and Augustinina Bullinger Chair of Political Science at Assumption College in Massachusetts. He holds a PhD in Political Science from the Catholic University of America and currently serves as Editor of Perspectives on Political Science and Book Review Editor for Society. A renowned expert on French political philosophy, his books also include the critically acclaimed Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from Ideology. Um, he's also the editor of the Solzhenitsyn Reader, which is a wonderful resource that I use in my classes. And most recently, he's author of The Idol of Our Age, How, Relig How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity, which was just published last year. Uh, and then we also have Professor Gladden Pappen, Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas. In 2017, he co-founded American Affairs, of which he is the deputy editor. He is a senior advisor and permanent research fellow of my university, the University of Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture, and is also a director of Pro Civitate Dei, uh, his writings on contemporary politics, as well as in the history of ecclesiastical politics, appear in a variety of publications. He received both his AB in history and his PhD in government from Harvard University. Uh, so we're grateful to have our three panelists with us. Each of them will speak uh, for about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, if they go much over that, I will uh, pass them a note. <laughs> And then we'll have time for discussion among the panelists and question and answer and discussion with the audience. So and we'll aim to finish around 5.30. So that's our, our plan for today. The order of our presenters will be first Professor Mahoney, who will give us an overview of uh, this uh, wonderful book, Catholicism and Democracy, a very provocative book. And then we'll move on to Professor Papin and then uh, Professor Brog and their commentary, uh, and then open for discussion and questions. So. Uh. Well, thank you so much, Professor Keyes. It's a real honor to be here. I should say, I. Oh, it's online. Thank you. I should say, I did not know Emil Perosa's scene all that well, but I knew his work very well. He was one of the first students and best students of our mutual friend and teacher, uh, Pierre Manon. And the last conversation I had with Emile Parosocin uh, was just shortly before his unfortunate death. And he had asked me to collaborate on a feshrift in honor of Pierre Manon, which eventually appeared, but unfortunately without the involvement of Emile. Um, 
he was extremely promising Catholic political thinker, somebody who operated at the intersections of politics, theology, philosophy, and history. And uh, I think that's that, that um, formation and that engagement uh, inform both his intellectual biography of, uh, rather critical intellectual biography of Alistair McIntyre, but also Catholicism and Democracy, this essay in the history of political thought. Let me say that um, this book succeeds brilliantly in showing the centrality of France and French theological, philosophical, and political thought for the self-understanding of the Catholic Church under conditions of modernity, and especially how the church ought to relate to this democratic revolution that Alexis de Tocqueville, a figure who's discussed in the book, uh, so famously mentions in the author's introduction to Democracy in America in 1835. I think one of the striking features of the book is Emile Provost's scene is a Catholic political thinker who primarily approaches the subject from the point of view of political philosophy and not political theology. Let me explain for a moment. Uh, in, a, in a very lucid and penetrating discussion of Joseph de Mestre, the author of Considerations in France and on the Gallican Church, and de Pop, his, uh, he was the first of the Ultramontanists, uh, uh, Prozacine points out that Mestre uh, uh, always resorted to theological explanations for politics, especially for the great and devastating French Revolution, which was involved the fundamental transformation of France and Europe and overturning of the Ancien Regime and a terrible threat with the new constitution on the civil clergy to the independence and liberty and integrity of the Catholic Church. And as Perosacine points out, Mestre came up with four explanations for the French Revolution. Atheism, Protestantism, which he called the great solvent, Satan, and divine chastisement. You will notice, and by the way, we, we don't want to mock Mestre. There's something to all those explanations, but none of them are political explanations. We can contrast, let's say, considerations on France with Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, Ancien Regime and, and La Révolution, which gives a very different account of the unfolding of the crisis culminating in the revolution of 1789 and the eventual rise of Bonaparte and Bonapartism. And uh, on the whole, Emile Perosa scene recommends and practices uh, something like Catholic political philosophy where political philosophy has something of an autonomy of its own. On page 55 of the book, he points out the first and still most complete and satisfying account of political things is that given by Aristotle in his politics. Aristotle does not resort to theological explanations of political things. His work, I think, is best understood as a kind of phenomenology of politics. And yet, the church largely endorsed and adopted uh, an Aristotelian approach to moral and political things 
during the High Middle Ages, especially with Thomas Aquinas. And um, Porosocene points out that when Pope Leo XIII endorsed the recovery of the perennial philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas in a famous encyclical in 1879, he was acknowledging the central place of philosophy and religion in Catholic self-understanding. Now that's different than Aristotle's phenomenology of political life and the politics, but both have this common ground that reason is central to any approach, any understanding of political and ethical things. And um, so I think, that's, I think that's very, very important to start off with. I think the brilliance of this book relates in large part to its reintroduction of categories that are almost completely unknown or forgotten outside of very specialized circles in the Anglo-Saxon world, as the French say, les Anglo-Saxons. Uh, uh, and that is Gallicanism. And I think it's very easy to think of Gallicanism as a neo-Machiavellian effort by state authorities to control and manipulate the church. But it was no such thing. The kings of France were the most Christian kings of France. And while French Catholics, for many centuries, felt an obligation to obey temporal authority on its own terms, um, they would not have hesitated, not even Bossuet would have hesitated to denounce a French king who was flirting with heresy or challenging the fundamental categories of uh, Christian faith and Christian self-understanding. So Gallicanism was a way of keeping religion and politics together while acknowledging and recognizing a kind of autonomy to the temporal order. And of course, Gallicanism became much more complicated with the French Revolution. The civil constitution of the clergy was not Gallicanism because the people of France were deciding who the bishops were. And in principle, the people, the revolutionary people, the sovereign people of France would decide what Catholic teaching was. You know, it's like the uh, Vatican's recent agreement with China. You know, the Archbishop of Beijing is a member of the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, that's not Gallicanism. Uh, Gallicanism was a system where the temporal authorities fully shared uh, the Catholic faith, as, uh, as uh, a Procene mentions. Even Richelieu, who we sometimes think of as a neo-Machiavellian, was uh, quite serious in his own way about the integrity of the Catholic faith. But with the revolution, Gallicanism in its purest form became an impossibility. And over time, the collapse of Gallicanism, the revolutionary challenge unleashed by 89 and subsequent events made Ultramontanism an attractive alternative for Catholics. I've already mentioned Mestre, but there were a whole series of French and English. There was one English Ultramontane named Ward who said, I would like to have a papal bull each morning with the Times of London, you know, knowing what's going on in England and getting my instructions from Rome. And, uh, uh, and that kind of ultramontanism, uh, uh, that illiberal, anti-modern ultramontanism was very influential in France in the first part of the 1850s. 
of the, eight, the 19th century. But Perosocene argues, I think quite cogently, that the ultramontanism going over the hill, the mountains to Rome, giving unprecedented authority to Rome as the final arbiter of sacred and temporal matters. The, the ultramontanism that triumphed with the First Vatican Council was a rather liberal ultramontanism. It was an ultramontanism that was interested in uh, saving the liberties of the church and in not, not so much in dictating the temporal arrangements of the various sovereign states of Europe. So in a way, the ultramontanism of Mestre had, and Bonald and others had much less influence on the subsequent unfolding of Catholic political thought and of papal thought and action than we sometimes recognize. Um, another part of Perosocene's book is an argument that without the First Vatican Council, the kind of vindication of the independence and prudence of the laity in the Second Vatican Council wouldn't have been possible. That the church, in a way, had to get itself in order, and it had to proclaim its primacy in things of the spirit. And I think one of the richest aspects of Catholicism and democracy is the way, this really original thesis, I think, that Vatican II and Vatican, Vatican I and Vatican II are in much greater continuity. Certainly, the progressivist reading of Vatican II as a new beginning, a break, an outpouring of the spirit, a break with that which comes before. The much vaunted spirit of Vatican II is not a plausible account of the church's self-understanding. Now, a couple more remarks. I would say perhaps the most interesting treatments in this book are of those figures that Perosocene calls Neo-Gallican. People, uh, I'll name four. Alexis de Tocqueville, I'm shamelessly Americanizing pronunciations. Uh, Charles Peggy, I didn't so Americanize that. Uh, uh, and the contemporary French political philosopher, uh, Pierre Manon. And in Perosocene's understanding, all three figures wanted to respect the temporal order. You might say that Peggy always warned Catholics against despising, mépris le temporel, despising the temporal realm, that there's a sacredness inherent in civic life and in human life that the believer has to respect. Tocqueville was a powerful advocate for the indirect role that the Christian religion could play in elevating, in informing uh, modern democracy. But it had to be indirect. It's a new kind of Gallicanism. The church will not, no longer have this esteemed and exalted place that it had in the ancien, and subordinated, paradoxically, place that it had in the ancien regime. But it's, it plays an absolute role in giving content to democratic life and belief. Uh, as Pierre Menant likes to say, the church has a certain dialectical advantage over democracy because it has something to say about what we should do with our freedom. And democracy is always tempted by a kind of nihilism. You know, ever greater expansion of rights, but the content of those rights, the, con the moral contents of life are weakened 
And so we end up with a, Tocqueville already saw this in the 1830s, the dependence of democratic self-affirmation on the, the spiritual and moral contents of faith that the Christian patrimony of Europe could provide. Peggy, Peggy famously said in 1881, uh, that in Notre Jeunesse, our youth, 1910, that the depoliticization and de-Christianization of Europe are part of the same process. Peggy, in a very idiosyncratic way, said, the modern world began in 1881. And he meant the Third Republic and its new education, which was Comtean and Kantian, scientific, humanitarian, and anti-Christian. But the Third Republic initially did not openly attack the church. That would all change with the coming to power of Emile Combe after the Dreyfus Affair, the famous and much vaunted separation of church and state. It's not what we mean by the separation of church and state. The closing of 2,000 Catholic schools. Charles de Gaulle, for example, went to school for 12 years in Belgium when his father's Jesuit school went from Paris to Brussels. Uh, religious orders were closed, et cetera, et cetera. And it was only World War I, the, the L'Union Sacrée. Peggy famously died at the Battle of the Marne. That brought the two Frances together temporarily. Uh, but Peggy is another representative of the neo-Gallicanism that uh, Poroso Scene speaks about with such respect. Um, I want to just read a passage from late, two passages from late in the book. Um, one of them has to do with three French figures who, in the 20th century, rejected both reactionary Catholicism or pseudo-Catholicism, like L'Action Française of Jean Morat. Morat was a Comtean. Uh, uh, he didn't believe in God, he didn't believe in the truths of the Catholic religion, but he thought Catholicism was useful for civic order against the anarchy, the anarchist delirium introduced by modernism. The three figures that Porosocene refers to are um, three great French thinkers, Catholic thinkers, Henri de Lubac, particularly his drama of atheistic humanism, Père Gaston Fassard, the great friend of Raymond Aron, who uh, warned against France losing its soul by collaboration with Vichy and Nazism, but spent the rest of his life from 45 on warning against Christian Marxism and the theology of liberation. He was also a great student of Hegel. Alexander Kozhev, the Hegelian Marxist, said, Gaston Fassard would have been the greatest Marxist in Europe if he didn't think Marxism was bunk and if he didn't believe in God. But uh, he was a very, very great man. And Jacques Maritain, who was a little more to the left and progressive in his politics, but he was also an honorable and abiding critic of Nazism and communism and an advocate and inspiration for what became the Christian democratic movements in Europe and uh, South America. Perosa scene shows that they were, these were really positive developments that even more important than the church's partial accommodation of democracy was its anti-totalitarianism. That the church discovered the necessity, the call 
of political moderation. As Peroso Sin says, neither Morat nor Marx. Good advice, by the way, for a French Catholic. Uh, so, and he quotes uh, uh, the Christmas address of Pius XII from 1944, where Pius XII speaks about uh, the bitter experience of modern times, where Catholics have learned the limits of autocracy and dictatorial government. It's one of the founding speeches of Christian democracy. Yes, Pius XII. But Peroso Sin also speaks about how, while the church made an accommodation with liberalism and democracy, it has become the leading force in the contemporary world for criticizing that aspect of liberalism that risks becoming dictatorial or totalitarian in the name of an unlimited uh, ethic of individual autonomy. So as he puts it, the church, particularly under the pontificates of John Paul II and Pope Benedict, saw that the crude totalitarianism of the communists was being replaced by a different creeping totalitarianism decked out in the false colors of political liberalism, a voluntarism, a nihilistic sexual ethic support for, as my friend Marianne Glendon once said, this is really coming true in America, abortion through the 18th month. You know, um, so, uh, um, so the church, I think, especially under those last two pontificates, did not see itself as an enemy of liberalism or democracy properly understood, but as a critic of a certain kind of totalitarian logic that not only subverted Christianity but also corrupted liberalism and democracy itself. Just a final word about Poroso Sin's treatment of his teacher, Pierre Menant. He calls Menant a kind of Gallican because of his desire to bring together the pride of the citizen with the humility of the Christian. And uh, I think Tocqueville and Peggy, in their own ways, also represented that effort to say a Christian must and can be a proud citizen, a defender of liberty, a critic of tyranny, and at the same time um, um, humble before the graciousness of our friend and father, the Creator God. Let me just read uh, a remark or two from Anant, and I will end this overview. Um, Benant suggests that the entire European adventure has been an effort to govern oneself in a certain relation to the Christian proposition. And he says that Europe at its best was a place where free men and women learned to, to, com to com combine and conjugate free will and conscience in self-governing political communities. So the great desideratum was to find a place for the collaboration of human prudence and divine providence. And as Manon comments, in this collaboration, the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas was able to provide the principles, but not to show the way 
to concretely put them in practice. So instead of, without in any way denying the institutional separation of church and state, um, Manad suggests that uh, European states, uh, whether they like it or not, uh, they, they combine secular political arrangements with, he calls them nations of a Christian mark. And faced by the challenges of radical secularism and by uh, and a political Islam, Christianity is the only spiritual force that is probably able to give moral content and spiritual inspiration to liberal societies. So again, I think that is a kind of neo-Gallicanism. Uh, it's a way of conjugating the temporal and the sacred that acknowledges the temporal order, that liberalism and liberal democracy are part of our temporal order, but that the temporal order to be itself to protect itself against a creeping totalitarianism needs a vision of human dignity, an account of ordered freedom, and an account of the dignity of the human soul that liberalism can provide for itself. Thank you. Is that working? Thanks very much uh, to the Lumen Christi Institute and to everyone who participated in organizing this excellent uh, event and to uh, Mary and, and Dan for their comments thus far. That forgotten ecclesiastical theories exert profound influence on modern politics uh, is the most impressive thesis of the book which brings us uh, together to honor the legacy of this scholar. I didn't know him at all personally, uh, only through his works, uh, to honor the legacy of this scholar whose life uh, was cut short nine years ago. Now that thesis is of course not unique to Emile Perrault-Saucin, although the importance of ecclesiastical thought I think is so frequently forgotten that we can never tire in reasserting it uh, even, its, in, even in its seemingly most obscure points, uh, which I'll definitely have a couple of in the following uh, remarks. Um, in Catholicism and Democracy, Perosocin reasserts the importance of Gallicanism, as, as uh, Professor Mahoney has suggested, um, in understanding 19th and 20th century uh, uh, Catholic thought. Uh, Gallicanism is a name applied to a constellation of doctrines sometimes with more political, sometimes uh, with specifically ecclesiastical overtones. Um, in, its, in its original 16th century, or in one of the, or not its original 16th century formula, formation, but in an important formation in the 16th century uh, by Pierre Pitou, it was summarized uh, as the thesis that popes cannot command or order concerning temporal things in the kingdom of France, um, and that even the pope's spiritual authority uh, is in France not absolute, uh, but restrained by the ancient canons of France. The counterintuitive payoffs from analyzing Catholicism and democracy from this standpoint are immediately evident uh, in Perosocine's conclusions. That the French Revolution's quasi-Gallican stripping of papal temporal ambitions strengthened the papacy's moral voice. That the ultramontanism of the First Vatican Council was thus symbiotic with liberalism, secularization of the state, 
that the Second Vatican Council's positive view of lay activity in the world in effect recovered a Gallican tradition and thus that the First and Second Vatican Council together exhibit two elements, instructional and participatory in the church's response to liberalism. All these together, I think, uh, mark a bold reinterpretation of ultramontanism as well as, uh, and especially, of the enduring significance of Gallicanism, including uh, liberal Gallicanism and its relevance, um, which I think uh, Dan summarized as a kind of defense uh, of the, or could be summarized as a kind of defense of liberalism's proper political pride. But the assertion that liberal, liberal Gallicanism is of essential political relevance today, however, uh, rests on at least two additional points. First, that democracy is a providential fact. And second, that political Gallicanism uniquely and correctly distinguishes between the temporal and spiritual spheres. Uh, it is these points which I wish to push back on a little bit um, and which I think together lead the viewpoint of liberal Gallicanism uh, to be somewhat insensitive to the current relationship of the two cities, uh, the earthly city and the heavenly city or the church. Now, that democracy is a providential fact, Perosocene asserts through Tocqueville, whose phrase that, of course, was. Tocqueville Perosocene writes, explained to his Catholic friends that the march of democracy was unstoppable. Indeed, he was so struck with society's steady progress toward equality that if he spoke of it in religious terms as a providential movement, almost as if there were some new kind of divine right, a divine right of peoples rather than of kings. Perosocene adopts this view, suggesting that, thanks to Tocqueville, Catholics realized, this I'm quoting now again, Catholics realized that a liberal democracy could still stay within the orbit of Christendom and be informed by the principles of the gospel. By contrast, reactionary ultramontanists such, such as Joseph de Mestre go into a category of eschatological rather than political reasoning for having formed the expectation that the Pope could, quote, become the arbiter of European political life, a hope not, uh, in quote, a hope not grounded, uh, as Perosocene says, in any inherent tendency in the modern state toward hierocracy. Their sheer lack of political realism, says Perosocene, uh, quoting, rested ultimately not on a political but on a prophetic foundation. Mesco was awaiting an imminent divine intervention that would see the unification of the human race and put an end to the division between nations, end quote. Now to be sure, the democratic fact that Tocqueville located, especially in the American social state, has exerted itself in almost every field. But I think we could say that strictly as a matter of comparison, uh, Tocqueville and Mestre both assert some sort of providential point of view. Tocqueville appears to and does have a political realism that Mestre lacks uh, because Tocqueville takes democracy as a fact with providential force to which he mounts a providential response, uh, sorry, excuse me, a, a political response as well as a more political account uh, of its origins. Uh, Joseph de Mestre's providence, I think, by contrast, is more Pauline focused on the eventual triumph of the church and ready to take advantage of the twists of human events. This perspective leads Mesco to view the events of the revolution through a providential lens in order to see the good that might come from them and the eventual benefit to the church. 
Now let us consider the second presupposition of liberal political Gallicanism, um, that it uniquely and correctly distinguishes between the temporal and spiritual powers uh, in a way useful for, their under, for, their, for understanding their relation today. The Gallican ideal, Perosocene writes, was of a close association of church and state in which the temporal and spiritual powers accorded each other due recognition in their respective spheres. Far from having mixed up religion and politics, as he says, uh, as some moderns think when looking at the Ancien Regime, quote, Gallicans reserved temporal matters for the laity, the Catholic laity, to the exclusion of the clergy whose sphere was strictly confined to the spiritual. In this account, the royal coronations at Reims, which might spring to mind when we think of the kings of France, were primarily about finding a justification for royal independence on grounds that would be competitive with those of the church. Divine right was merely the means by which independence from the church was sought. Gallicanism is thus, on this account, a flexible political ideal chiefly oriented toward a clear conception of lay prerogatives and civil government. By contrast, the Gallican viewpoint interprets even the modified claims of a papal indirect power as tending, quote, in the end, toward direct power. Gallicanism is evidently all sweetness and light, while reactionary ultramontanism is utopian and unrealistic. Tempting as it is to accept such an ap apologia for the Ancien Regime, and in particular for the political relevance of Gallicanism, I do believe that Perot-Socine's account for all of its um, profound insight does omit from its description of Gallicanism uh, the crucial and th I think really increasingly crucial question of the jurisdictional boundaries of civil government and the church. Presenting the quarrel of Gallicanism and Ultramontanism as a dispute over the usefulness of temporal independence from ecclesiastical power rather stacks the decks, deck against the Ultramontanes by glossing over the flashpoints at which civil and ecclesiastical jurisdiction tended to conflict, and of course, begging the question whether reactionary ultramontanes or their papal forebears had in fact failed to distinguish temporal and spiritual power or disregarded the purposes of civil government. Yet, as I believe should be obvious, it is precisely these flashpoints that have once again taken center stage in the inconclusible dispute of spiritual and temporal power, the flashpoints now before us concerning how the church should be governed internally and by whom, as well as concerning the church's prerogatives in governing its own clergy and the disputed diplomatic immunity of, sen of senior clergy and indeed the church's status generally as a juridical body or a perfect society. Um, here I think favorably, in fact, uh, of this, this wonder that's clearly in Perot-Sassin's mind uh, as he's writing the book. He says, the Catholic Church is favorable to liberal democracy because it sees religious liberty as fundamental to that form of government. It will be markedly less favorable if, in the name of liberalism, strict limits are placed on its own liberty and society comes to ignore what it regards uh, as the most fundamental laws, end quote. Now, that this prophecy, so to speak, has already begun to come to pass. 
suggests that the modest corrective liberalism uh, that Perot seen hoped to see from the church will not be the whole story. It may be insufficient in the end for grappling uh, with the pending, uh, and indeed in some cases current, civil invasions of the spiritual power. In a manner that I think should be troubling for neo-Gallican efforts, however, it was in fact Gallicanism which made the most striking attempts to have the civil courts take cognizance of ecclesiastical causes. The jurisdictional flashpoint between civil and ecclesiastical power in the Ancien Regime was the appel comme d'abus, or the appeal as from an abuse, which allowed clergy tried before ecclesiastical courts to appeal from ecclesiastical to secular courts, royal courts, in cases whose conclusions had been apparently abusive. A common Gallican conception, this was a common Gallican conception of civil power, um, held you know, all the way from the time of the pragmatic sanctions uh, to Pierre Pitou's um, outline of, of the liberties of the Gallican church at the end of, uh, of, the, of the 16th century, uh, all the way through to the Gallicans of the 17th and 18th centuries. They all held, generally at least, that royal courts could take cognizance of ecclesiastical causes by reason of the disruption of peace. In a kind of inversion of the papal cognizance of civil causes by reason of sin, the royal courts of France frequently accepted appeals from clergy dissatisfied with judgments made in ecclesiastical courts, not only in criminal matters, but including in many famous cases, even in the determination of liturgical questions, uh, such as the applicability of the reforms of uh, the Council of Trent. In this respect, I believe that Gallicanism too counts as a political theology. It was at this usurpation of ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical prerogative uh, by the kings of France that the papal bull in Cena Domini was annually proclaimed, objecting to the appeals as from abuse, as well as the subjection of clergy to the lay courts generally. Uh, this was a bull that was clearly in force uh, as late as 1855 on the eve of the Vatican Council. The Gallican approach, I think, by no means holds a monopoly on the clear distinction of civil jurisdiction from civil matters, from spiritual matters, for the boundary between those powers has always been contested. Each power has always sought grounds for superiority in the disputed matters. The dis question is only what are the boundaries of that jurisdiction whether the boundaries are in dispute, and what sort of determinations are able to be made by the powers on each side. Uh, Peroso seen is at pains to assert, although I think not entirely correctly in my view, that the First Vatican Council abandoned the claims of the church's jurisdictional supremacy or even jurisdictional integrity by emphasizing the instructional and moral capacity of the papacy. For example, uh, he says, by confining the victory of ultramontanism to the spiritual sphere, the council upheld a separation of temporal from the spiritual, which they would otherwise have been accused of obliterating. The breach with ecclesiastical Gallicanism was thus evident because of the First Vatican Council's papalism, but I'm still quoting. Um, but there was no such breach with the political Gallicanism of the Ancien Regime, end quote. Now, considering that Vatican I was adjourned because of the occupation of Rome um, by the Kingdom of Italy, it's hard to imagine 
on what practical basis the council fathers would have trumpeted the superiority of the spiritual over the temporal power. Um, but as a matter of simple description, the council's own defenders considered papal infallibility and ecclesiastical jurisdiction apples and oranges, albeit matters that were often confused by critics of the infallibility declaration. For example, critics of the infallibility declaration said that this bull in Cena Domini, uh, which had been, uh, you know, was no longer being renewed, um, renewed by the Holy See, uh, was because the Vatican had changed its policy on, uh, on um, you know, toward uh, civil courts, uh, that thus it couldn't claim infallibility because they, uh, the critics of the proposed infallibility declaration said if any bull uh, constituted an infallible one, it was in Cena Domini, whereas from the standpoint of the council, that was a matter of jurisdiction, not uh, infallible teaching. While the council was not able to finish its declaration on the church, subsequent legislation uh, maintained the integrity in principle of ecclesiastical jurisdiction over the, over the clergy uh, in both the 1917 and 1983 codes, as well as the church's right uh, to coerce the faithful um, in both the 1917 and 1983 codes. And these canons, I believe, uh, directly contradict the political Gallicanism that the church uh, supposedly adopted. They were not abandoned by the infallibility declaration. The great contribution of Emile Peroso seen Catholicism and democracy, uh, I believe, uh, in conclusion, is to highlight the circumstances of political deprivation out of which the modern church was able to call a new and clear voice. In fact, indeed, as he says, um, and even because of this condition, at the very moment, uh, from 1870 to 1929 at least, that the church appeared to have completely lost one of its two swords. Everything hinges, though, I think, on whether we view these new modes of relating to the civil power as, as the acquisition of new tools or the abandonment of old ones. In a context of democratic but secular politics in cultures still marked by Christianity, the church's shift toward a directive power and its encouragement of lay political decision-making makes a great deal of sense indeed it still does. But if we view this shift as an embrace of political Gallicanism, we will not be prepared for the eternal return of boundary disputes between the civil and the ecclesiastical power in matters of jurisdiction. Those disputes are now here. A democracy willing to accept lay Christian cooperation seems no longer to be a providential fact. The civil power has its own sense of how to take cognizance of ecclesiastical causes by reason of sin um, or by reason of the disturbance of the peace or its view that the church is poorly governing itself, which has no doubt uh, been true in many respects. Um, and the civil power is ever less shy to show the religious intensity of its fundamental com uh, commitments. Um, those who sensed this conflict would return and who preserved the church's jurisdictional claims even when they were in abeyance, are those that we call the ultramontanes. Um, and it is their expectations, which I believe, of course, not in the, not in the fanatical uh, elements which uh, Perot uh rightly criticizes on occasion, um, but they have some expectations which have proved uh, realistic.
this my cue? Okay, well, <clears throat> first, I would like to uh, conjure up with emotion and thankfulness uh, the memory of Emile Perrault-Saucin, whom I met right here in Chicago many years ago, to be precise, in November 1998, on the occasion of my giving a lecture at the All-In Foundation in the framework of a series on democracy and the soul of nations. He was then living in a small room in, in Calvert House, if my memory serves me right, but I may be wrong. And he was writing his PhD on McIntyre, another great neighbor, who, thank goodness, is still among us. We have a common point, uh, the late Emile Perrault-Saucin and my humble self. Well, I, I hate people to boast, but I am French. <laughs> to uh, slightly adapt uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, in spite of all temptations to belong to other nations, I am a Frenchman. Which drove me to uh, the necessity of probing, let's say in a vicarious way to be sure, the collective conscience of France. The title of my uh, presentation uh, in 98 was French Unconsciousness. It is a fact that for uh, the average Frenchman, being French is something absolutely natural that we take for granted. Everybody is a Frenchman, with the exception of foreign peoples. <laughs> and now, I am sort of compelled by uh, Emile Perrault-Saucin's work to delve deeper uh, in my conscience and in our collective conscience in order to ask the question, but why France? For it is the case that uh, this book focuses heavily on French phenomena and explains why France was the laboratory of sorts of new political uh, solution, new policies and new uh, intellectual political solutions to, uh, well, let's say, uh, the predicament of uh, late uh, modernity. France is a weird country. I was given the opportunity some days ago in Detroit to, uh, well, reflect on the dual aspect of France. France is the country which had to bear the brunt of the most radical kind of enlightenment thought and practice transposed in the revolutionary policy, in the policy of the French Revolution, which in its most extreme form was simply planned to do away with Christianity. Uh, Daniel has just alluded to uh, Peggy's uh, mentioning de-Christianization. This is not a mere catchword. It was a program, uh, well, launched by the most extreme 
uh, uh, form the most extreme team, sort of, of French revolutionists. And apart, uh, besides, uh, uh, along uh, side with this uh, extreme anti-Christianity, there was the uh, fantastic missionary adventure of 19th century France, an inner mission. We should not forget why there are so many crosses along our uh, countryside roads. Uh, they were uh, more often than not the result of a mission launched during the period of the Restoration, right after <coughs> the Napoleonic Wars. But this mission was also uh, uh, an outside mission, and well, I was reminded of this reality while speaking of Father Gabriel Richard, who played a very important part uh, in Detroit, and whose church was, by the way, the second oldest one, uh, uh, second oldest Catholic church, to be sure, in this country. Uh, I remember reading some years, matter two, three years ago, uh, Willa Carthur's novel, Death Comes for, for the Archbishop, in which the central character uh, is sort of molded after uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamy, who was a French uh, priest who evangelized New Mexico and founded the Cathedral of Santa Fe. Hence, this weird duality. Zwei Seelen wohnen auch in meiner Brust. This is bad French and bad English too, but this can capture the situation. You're a country with two, two souls, two souls uh, in her chest. The phenomenon of Gallicanism, well, as the name has it, can't be uh, something else than a French phenomenon. At first blush, because Gallicanism was partly, at least, a consequence of the Protestant Reformation that well, happened in the whole of Europe. It was a, an, a well, the, so to speak, uh, uh, Gallicanism <coughs> began with a Germanism, i.e. The, uh, the independence of the German church or churches, and their getting under the power of the German princes, rulers. And this was uh, Luther's explicit will in his treatise uh, um, um, This all-European phenomenon had four tasters, uh, four runners in the Middle Ages, and in particular in France with uh, Philippe le Bel in, in his conflict with the papacy. But it came to a head with the Protestant Reformation, with the Germanism, whether, that's not a word of art, I've just coined it in this uh, exception at least. And there was another very important phenomenon <coughs> which ran parallel <coughs> to uh, uh, the French developments, i.e. Anglicanism, the Church of England, the church which defines itself as being the church of a, a precise nation and which uh, uh, performed a break with the Holy See. And by the way, 
the temptation was present in other parts of Europe. Venice is a good example of that. Venice, I mean, well, the Venetian commercial aristocracy toyed with the idea of, uh, well, well, following the, the, the steps of, uh, of England. And this is, by the way, why Giordano Bruno, you know, this hero of free thought, went to Britain in order to uh, sort of take lessons from what happened uh, with the Church of England. Well, this failed because the Christian fold uh, in Venice resisted. But this might very well have happened. And as far as uh, uh, Catholic countries which remain Catholic, like France, for that matter, well, the, the, uh, <coughs> the game the kings played was to explain, consisted in explaining to the Pope, well, perhaps we could do the same thing as, uh, as the Brits. This was a means to uh, get pressure on the papacy in order to obtain, uh, uh, well, some sort of blackmail, you know, against the Pope in order to get more freedom for the Church of France. Well, one of the extremely interesting, for me, who is not a historian at all, uh, was uh, the lesson in history that was taught, that is taught by Emile Perrault-Saucin in this work. And this is a lesson in the dialectics of history, you know, uh, uh, the way in which uh, the boot comes <coughs> to the other foot against the will of the people who triggered or who pretended to be triggering the events. You know? And we <coughs> need not believe with Joseph de Maistre that uh, old Harry uh, was behind the scene and performing all kind of unpleasant tricks. Well, he certainly is always behind the scene whenever <laughs> bad things happen, but there's a great deal of intermediaries okay, between him in the last resort and what happens. And well, be that as it may, let me give two examples that are to be found in uh, Emile Perrault-Saucin's book uh, of, <clears throat> let's say, dialectical movements uh, in history. Uh, when Napoleon decided to make his peace, or to make France, uh, to have France make his peace with uh, the Pope, uh, he uh, uh, fostered uh, a, uh, a turn in the very way in which the papacy understood itself. He sort of compelled the papacy to claim a power that it had never even dreamt of either two. The Pope was supposed to remove the French bishops from their seats, and as a matter of fact, the whole uh, uh, French bishopric had to go, and the Pope had to replace them uh, with people, with, with uh, new bishops uh, named from scratch, like pawns on a chessboard. No Pope had ever done that, not even thought of doing that. Uh, and for this reason, uh, the attempt of Napoleon 
to bring the church under uh, his thumb, well, proved to, uh, uh, prove, uh, to, to produce the contrary. And the upshot of all that was the uh, greater power, uh, spiritual and not only spiritual, but jurisdictional power of a pope. Second example, the separation, the so-called separation of church and state in 1905. The spiritus rector of this separation was a uh, politician uh, whom um, uh, Daniel has named, Emile Combe. Emile Combe was a very competent uh, opponent of the Catholic Church because of his own Catholic background. He had written his doctoral thesis, the larger one on Aquinas, and the shorter one on Bernard of Clairvaux, Saint Bernard, the great uh, mystic uh, of the uh, 12th century. He knew what he, was, what he was doing. Know thy enemy. Well, he was sort of outsmarted by uh, the events. For people who really hated the guts of the Catholic Church, wanted the state to keep control on it. And well, if you want to control something and somebody, you have to pay him or it. Okay. By removing uh, the uh, uh, state support that was bestowed up to now on the church, he unwittingly, this was his, his uh, uh, well, most uh, extreme, uh, um, well, supporters who did that against his own will. He, re he deprived the state of any pull on the church. And for this reason, the separation had, well, we can say that now if we look at things in the rear mirror, emphatically positive effects on the Catholic Church. A counterexample might be the German church, you know, the German church is wealthy, but, well, not exactly at the beck and call of the state, but his, uh, well, and this is what many uh, uh, churchmen tell me. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a, a part of my career uh, teaching in Germany, and, well, many German Catholics, well, <laughs> look at the French church with some sort of envy. To be sure, the French church is poor, poor, not a bean. But the level of freedom vis-a-vis -vis the political power is greater than in Germany. Okay. There is a speciality of France which I would like to underline and which comes to uh, the fore most interestingly in uh, uh, Emile Perrault-Saucin's uh, work, since, uh, among other reasons, uh, this uh, French speciality sheds light on a general problem of our modern societies. The problem was seen clearly 
by a man who was not at all a devout Catholic. He probably hadn't even been baptized. The, the philosopher, the mathematician and philosopher, Auguste Comte, uh, 1798-1857, okay. the father of the so-called positivism. Uh, that's the, a word that he minted uh, himself, you know, in order to describe what he wanted. Well, uh, today, positivism is understood exclusively as uh, a way for, uh, as something that society should do, i.e. Uh, giving power uh, to the scientists. Okay. But this was not uh, Comte's intention. What he really uh, was driving at was the possibility of a new spiritual power that could be an efficient balance weight against the increasing power precisely of science, technology, and things. And this is for us, well, a living uh, a life issue. His solution was the, uh, a new religion, uh, a new religion. Well, this fellow had a bee in the bonnet, oh, must have. <laughs> be quite frank about that. And like each and every paranoid, he was utterly consequent. He founded a new religion for which he wrote a catechism, and he even drafted a, a new calendar with new saints. Uh, Newton, for instance, was a great saint in his calendar. It's interesting, by the way, that among the saints, Saint Paul is there. Saint Paul as the founder of the Catholic Church as a principle of order. Jesus is not. Jesus Christ is absent from his uh, uh, calendar. Okay. I'll leave this aside and draw your attention to a phenomenon for which I might have coined myself uh, a word and which is uh, mentioned uh, explicitly in Emile Perrault-Saucin's book, uh, the existence of uh, people whom I could call, uh, whom I called Christianists. Christianists. A Christian is somebody who believes in Jesus Christ. A Christianist does not necessarily believe in Christ, but he or she believes in Christianity, in the, uh, well, in the positive uh, well, influence of Christianity uh, on, say, Western civilization or civilization at large. And we, uh, this is uh, a movement that uh, began in France with people like Auguste Comte, whom I've just been mentioning, and with his uh, direct or indirect uh, disciples. Let us, uh, as an example, and I will end with that, think of Maurice Barres. Maurice Barres, who was a novelist, and uh, he is reported to have said, I am an atheist, but a Catholic. A Catholic atheist, sort of. Charles Maurras, uh, whom you've just uh, mentioned, Daniel, 
belongs to the same club, i.e. Catholicism was good as a principle of national identity, and he was a jingoist of sorts, a French jingoist, if this is a, <laughs> a word that I can uh, venture here. And well, for him, Catholicism was an important element of French consciousness and of French identity. There are analogous temptations in our present day world in France, and not only in France, i.e. Uh, uh, instrumentalizing Christianity as a principle of, well, social, cultural, civilizational, national, whatnot, identity. And if uh, Emile Perrosso-Sin's book can be, among other qualities, a warning against this temptation, well, he wouldn't have lost uh, his time. Thank you so much. Just one comment and a question, and then I'll open the floor uh, for questions. But this panel really, and uh, Emil Perot-Sassin's book, really uh, struck me as a wonderful example of French and American connections and dialogue as well. And uh, coming from Notre Dame, obviously, we're the result of that missionary thrust from the 19th century France. So whatever is good there is, is uh, part of the legacy. I, um, I'm wondering, so two things. One thing that struck me is the, the way in which Emile Perot-Sassin's uh, argument, in a sense, uh, reverses the direction of Tocqueville. Tocqueville, who looks to the United States as the laboratory of democracy and uh, the laboratory of the relations in many ways between the sort of natural relations between democracy and Christianity. And Perot-Sassin wants to say, well, but looking at contemporary developments, in terms of church and state relationships and some of the difficulties of navigating those, we would do well to look to France as a laboratory and uh, to learn from the French, the French experience. Uh, so I wondered if the panelists had any con just any thoughts on that that they haven't already articulated and or on the question of Perot-Sassin's thought on uh, Christian citizenship uh, in terms of our contemporary world, what we might learn either from him or from critical engagement with his book. Just, uh, those, in case anyone would like to respond to those, that will be fine, uh, and then we'll open the floor. I was just gonna say one thing real quick. I think at at there's at least, I would love to have heard more of what he would have written about America, and I, I don't know if perhaps he made some, some comments somewhere. Um, but he does express, uh, if, if memory serves, he does express dismay uh, with Leo XIII's criticism of the American Church. Um, you know, in the um, so there was a there was a tendency among American Catholics that uh, Leo XIII responded to, uh, which you know favored the freedom of the American Church as an ideal, uh, and Leo XIII wrote this encyclical. Uh, Longinqua to the American bishops saying, yes, yes, very good, congratulations, very glad things are going well there. Uh, just don't forget that church-state union is number one goal. Um, and uh, and Perosacine does, I think, at least indirectly praise the American political settlement by sort of, he brings up that um, response from Leo XIII in a, in a critical manner. So I think it's, I think in a way, um, I mean, I wonder if he would have 
said that in that in some senses, um, you know, the American Catholic lay life at its best would probably be an example of the political Gallicanism that he praised, perhaps. I think there's a danger in reading this book as too much an endorsement of a simple political and uh, intellectual accommodation between Catholicism and democracy. The book begins uh, on the opening page in the introduction with a discussion of what he calls the theological drift of democracy. Without mentioning Tocqueville, it's right out of the beginning of volume two of democracy, the drift of the democratic mind toward pantheism, to the idea that God is all and all is God. And he brings out, like Tocqueville, the political consequences of pantheism, that um, the citizen is absorbed by the people, the people by humanity, and humanity itself by an undifferentiated nature. And there's a remarkable remark by Tocqueville in the early chapters of volume two of Democracy, and he says, all those who care for the survival of human dignity and greatness should unite to fight pantheism. You know, when my students are reading this, they say, what the hell is pantheism? And what are we supposed to unite against? And why is this such a big deal? But that suggests a real awareness that at the deepest level, there is a spiritual deficit, that there is, however just political democracy might be, in including the whole of a people in a political community, eliminating the ancien regime, the regime of estates, that democracy itself risks a new and terrible homogenization of politics, of culture, and the human soul. And this book ends by talking about the the concerns that the pontificates of uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI had on that score. I would say the present pontificate doesn't really have that concern. It's much more open to accommodating the church to the spirit of the age. We see the German bishops wanting to give blessings to same-sex unions, and we see a general belief that, um, uh, a tendency, I would say, to quote a great line from uh, Jacques Maritain, from Le Paysan de la Garonne, a book he wrote in the midst of the Second Vatican Council that uh, all around him he saw kneeling before the world. So I just want to say this about uh, Emil Porroso Sin's book. He, I don't sense in any way he wants the church to capitulate to late modernity. And I think his accommodation with liberal democracy is at the service of saving the best of the liberal tradition by elevating it and making it compatible with the survival of what Tocqueville would call uh, uh, human dignity and uh, political greatness. Um, About uh, France and the the centrality, you might say, of the French experience of the theological political problem, I think this operates on a couple of levels. I've often argued, the, the argument is not exactly original to me, that studying French political thought in the period after the revolution is much more constructive than let's studying English political theory. Compare Tocqueville and Mill. Mill is a progressivist 
he's scientistic, he's humanitarian, he takes for granted the inevitable victory of modern progress. Um, he, uh, uh, and, and partly because English political institutions evolved from 18th century oligarchy to 20th century parliamentary monarchy in a pretty successful and piecemeal way, no coup d'etat or civil war since the 17th century. The English lost the capacity to think seriously about political philosophy. So much so by the 1950s, the analytic philosophers told us political philosophy was dead until it was supposedly resurrected by John Rawls in 1971. Uh, but uh, the French, if you look at Royal Collard and Constant and Tocqueville and many of the other figures, the 19th century figures mentioned in Emile Porrosocin's book, these were thinker, thinkers who had to wrestle with the pathologies of the revolution and of modern democracy. They also had to wrestle with the counter-temptation of uh, counter-revolution, a kind of reactionary response to the problems of, uh, of late modernity. And so there's something very rich in the French experience of the, uh, the, the modern project and the modern, uh, the political versions of the modern project that makes it a particular uh, laboratory, as Remy Bragg said, for uh, coming to terms with both the strengths and weaknesses of the democratic soul and the democratic political project. And I would also say, um, just to counter uh, my friend Gladden a little bit, the old Gallicanism, both the ecclesiastical Gallicanism and the political Gallicanism of the pre-revolutionary period, is not something that's available to us for all sorts of reasons. Peroso seen talks, for example, about Gallicanism was perfectly fine with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And we all know what that meant for the French Huguenot population. Uh, uh, that said, neo-Gallicanism, people along the Tocquevillian line have made their peace with the autonomy of the civic order, which is probably democracy at its best, and yet see these profound spiritual deficits at the heart of a modern project drifting toward nihilism, seems to me that neo-Gallican project to keep the pride of the acting citizen, the humility of the Christian together in a democracy, we might say, that risks losing its soul, or to reiterate, succumbing to nihilism, is I think a very uh, important way in which the church can speak to the modern world without kneeling before the world, a la Maritain's phrase. And by the way, there's another inconvenience with contemporary ultramontanism. The 19th century ultramontanists could look to Rome as the source of ultimate spiritual and political authority. But Rome today is tempted to accommodate itself to uh, the religion of humanity or accommodate itself to modern progress in the realm of sexual morality, but also in the realm of politics. And so if that's the case, uh, ultramontanism mainly becomes a vehicle 
for using the clerical or ecclesiastical authority of the church to undermine some of the inherited and ancient teaching and truths of the church. So I think that's a great contradiction. It's a new contradiction in ultramontanism. That ultra, if, ultra, if, if the pope becomes the final word on all matters sacred and temporal, but the pope is, let's say, half humanitarian and committed to a project that involves a very powerful and substantive accommodation with modernity, we are completely in uncharted territory. So yes, there are limits of Gallicanism, but there's also, I think, significant limits to the new ultramontanism. Okay, well, I think we can open the floor then. Uh, questions, comments from any of you?